Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore the trials and rewards of having two religions under one roof as we speak to Susan Katzmiller, author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Susan Katz-Miller. She's the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Miller began her career as a journalist at Newsweek, working out of their New York, Los Angeles, and Washington bureaus. From there, she moved to Senegal, where she wrote for the New York Times and the Christian Science Monitor. She's worked as the U.S. correspondent for the British weekly magazine New Scientist and spent three years freelancing from northeastern Brazil. After her two children were born, she and her husband settled in the Washington, D.C. area, and she founded a blog devoted to interfaith family communities and interfaith identity called OnBeingBoth.com. Susan Katzmiller, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I've asked you to start out by reading a, a portion from the beginning of your book, On Being Both. Sure. Each year, my extended clan gathers for a huge Passover Seder in Florida, My 88-year-old father presides over the ritual meal, leading us through the prayers and songs of religious freedom. The family at the table includes believers, seekers, and secularists, Jews, Catholics, Protestants, Buddhists, and those who claim interfaith identity. A Jewish nephew who is about to become a bar mitzvah and a Catholic nephew who just received First Communion compete with my interfaith son to find the traditional hidden matzah, We are a joyous, motley crew intent on celebrating together. In 21st century America, we live in a kaleidoscope of religious identities, complex, swirling patterns of faith, spirituality, heritage, and practice. Many of us attend more than one place of worship. We change our religions more than once in a lifetime. We may believe in God or not, but still seek spiritual experience inside and outside of churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples. And we are marrying across traditional lines of race, ethnicity, gender, and religion. And that's our guest, Susan Katz-Miller, reading from her book, Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. So your book on being both is about the experience of intentionally interfaith families. Could you tell us a bit about your background and your experiences with that? Well, we have to go back a generation to the night when my parents met in 1953. They were arguing over the last taxi cab on a rainy night at Logan Airport in Boston, and they ended up getting in together. 
And by the time the woman who had become my mother got out of the cab, the man who had become my father had obtained her phone number. Seven years went by before they got married because they really struggled with the idea of can you have an interfaith marriage? What does that look like? It wasn't common in the 1950s. But finally, they took that leap. And they did what most families did at that time and what a lot of families still do today, which is that they chose one religion in which to raise their children. So my mother put aside her Episcopalian practice and became the mother of a Jewish family. And she shepherded all four of her children through bar and bat mitzvahs. And we grew up and went out into the world. And I have a brother who married a Catholic and is raising Catholic children. I have a sister who married a conservative Jew and raised her children Jewish. And I married an Episcopalian, but we made this decision to raise our children with both of our family traditions. So if I'm hearing you correctly, your parents' family experience was they came from two different religious traditions. And when they married, they made the decision to consolidate into one religious tradition. And the children of that union have made various choices, uh, some going to Christianity, some going to Judaism, and you in particular uh, choosing to raise your children in two uh, parallel traditions. Have I heard that correctly so far? That's correct. Now, before before we, we delve into that, because I'm, I really want to talk about that, did your mother ever speak to you about what it was like to leave Episcopalianism and enter Judaism? I think part of the idea of raising children in one religion when they come from an interfaith family is that you present this united front. And so she really did her best. She went and she studied Hebrew with our rabbi. She learned how to make matzah balls. And in my conscious memory, she didn't go to church. She really put all of that aside. She did it the way people were telling her to do it, what, what the clergy were telling her, what the religious institutions were telling her. And I think that that had benefits in terms of I have a very deep Jewish identity and so it worked in that sense. Um, but there were also drawbacks. I mean, in adulthood, I learned that she had actually, before meeting my father, applied to an Episcopal seminary. And so I had this realization that religion had been important to her, that she hadn't just put it aside because she didn't really care. Um, she hadn't just put it aside because she didn't really care. And so I find that poignant frankly. And as a feminist, it's not something that I could do. So I was the one bringing Judaism to our family, to my children, and I wasn't re really willing to just put it aside, even though my children have three out of their four grandparents are Episcopalian. So that might have been the logical choice in my family. But I wanted them to have both. So we've begun to touch on this, but I'd like to just take a moment and linger there. When we say the word interfaith family, we're not actually talking about one type of family. Could you give us sort of what the spectrum of, of interfaith families are in your experience? Sure. Well, there are many pathways that you can take. I mean, some families choose one, some choose the other religion, some choose both. Many choose none, and we should talk probably about why that's the case and what that means. Um, and some move to a more universal position where they're sort of studying all religions. And some actually cho choose 
and some actually choose a third religion, um, a new choice, rather than going with one or the other. So if I'm hearing you correctly, some will abandon the tradition on both sides and choose a wholly new tradition? Yes. Uh, I tell the story in the book of a family where the father, uh, you know, the I tell the story of a family in this book where the man was Catholic, the woman was Jewish. They searched together for a religious practice that would work for them. This was in the 60s. And they ended up becoming Sufi Muslims and raised their children in that tradition. So, This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to journalist and author Susan Katz-Miller about her book On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. So clearly from the discussion already, you, you made a conscious decision when you entered your marriage to go about interfaith relationship in a certain type of way. If, if you could, could you tell us a little bit about what the discussions and decision-making process was like as you were, you were talking with your husband about how this family would look and, and what, what the arrangements would be? Yes, part of what I write about is the idea that no matter which of those pathways you choose, there are going to be benefits of that pathway and there are going to be drawbacks. So for me, being raised with one religion had those benefits in terms of the depth of my connection to Judaism, but there also were those drawbacks, um, one being that sort of poignant feeling about my mother having sacrificed, and another being that I've had to defend my Jewish identity throughout my lifetime. That is part of being an interfaith child. No matter which pathway your parents choose for you, you are probably going to have to go out and defend your identity and explain it to people. So there is a cognitive dissonance where my parents gave me this label of Jewish, but when I grew up and went out into the world, there were a lot of people telling me that I wasn't Jewish because I was from an interfaith family, because it's my father and not my mother who's Jewish. And so I think on some level for my own children, I did not want them to have to go out and have to defend themselves all the time as Jewish when they have one Jewish grandparent, they were going to receive a lot of challenges. And so I think at that point I said, for our family, I want them to be literate in both religions. I want them to understand the references in culture, in politics, um, to both religions because they have a right to that knowledge. This is the way I feel personally that as an interfaith child, because you have to defend yourself to the world, you need to arm those children with as much knowledge as you can with a a deep education in all of their ancestry so that they understand, for instance, my children have a great-great-grandfather who was an itinerant rabbi on the Mississippi River. I want them to understand what that means. They also have a great-great-grandfather who was an Episcopal bishop of Newark. And I don't want them to be ignorant about that. I want them to understand what that means. If I were to ask your children about their identification, it sounds like they would say that they have two well-formed, distinct, but overlapping religious identities, not a blended religious identity. Have I heard that correctly? That's right. I, you know, I tend to not use these words, blended, fused, mixed, um, I try to communicate the idea that we really do respect the fact that these are separate and 
that they have these deep histories and texts that are discreet and that we honor and that we're not trying to throw out. We're not trying to create a third religion. We're trying to go as deeply as we can into the two religions in the family. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, folks. If you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you might have figured out that I'm a bit of an odd mix. I'm lefty and progressive in my politics, and I'm conservative and traditional in my theology. I'm a full gospel, Acts 4 and 5 kind of guy. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a new degree program being offered by my friends at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. It's their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. Hey, I'm in touch with listeners, and I know a lot of you are serving your communities in nonprofits and civic organizations. Some of you are even on the front lines as activists and organizers. You're trying to make the world a better place. The folks at Garrett want to make this world a better place, too, and they know the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to that effort. If you've been wanting to integrate your faith with your work, you'll want to check out their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. The entire city of Chicago will be your classroom. You'll graduate with a stronger network and a better understanding of how Jesus Christ is speaking to the world of today. Get excited about this. This could be your next step. Go to garrett.edu slash MAPM, the initials of Master of Arts in Public Ministry. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot E-D-U slash M-A-P-M. Tell Katie and Jill I sent you. They're good people, and they'll be glad to tell you more about the new Master of Arts in Public Ministry from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Once again, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot E-D-U slash M-A-P-M. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Susan Katz-Miller, author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. What is the politics of an interfaith family uh, with with these various communities that you that you claim and you you've begun to touch on it that some would say well because you don't have a mother who's Jewish or or your father or depending on the the relationship some people will claim you're not actually part of a legitimate tradition but sort of what has been your experience of the of the political reality of an interfaith family well I would say you have to be strong in your own beliefs and your own identity and be willing to defend yourself in the world. And this is a drawback, but of course there's a silver lining, which is that it builds your character. It forces you to be articulate about who you are and to think deeply about who you are so that you can explain that to the world. One of the things we teach children, interfaith children being raised with both, is that you are an interfaith ambassador you are going to have to go out and explain yourself to the world, and therefore you're going to be explaining both of your ancestral religions to the world. So often interfaith children will find themselves in a position where they're explaining Judaism to their Christian friends, and then they'll be explaining Christianity to their Jewish friends. And it's almost like you are born into this state of being a teacher and an ambassador. Now, you mentioned in your own personal experience that you had to defend your your Jewish identity against those that would question that. So when when you were coming out of that family experience, a choice had been made for you. Your parents decided our daughter and our other children, they will be raised Jewish. And you had challenges to that from outsiders within the broader tradition who would say, but no, you're not really Jewish. And so you learned for yourself how to articulate uh, an identity that was secure but that also sort of, as you said, was kind of an ambassador identity that, that, that bridged these, these gaps. 
So when you were making decisions about starting a family with, with your husband, did you draw upon that experience and look to the future? And did you encounter some pitfalls and hardships that maybe you hadn't anticipated from your own experience in making the kind of decisions about the family arrangements that you made? Um, I think one of the reasons my husband and I made this relatively new and more unusual choice to raise them with both had to do with our experiences out in the world. You mentioned in the introduction that we had lived in both Senegal and Brazil, and both of those experiences fed into our decision. Um, In Senegal, we, as a young couple without children, celebrated Jewish holidays and Christian holidays, but also uh, Muslim holidays with our Senegalese friends and neighbors. So already I went from sort of a little New England town where everybody was pretty much Protestant with a few Catholics and we were the only, I think, half-Jewish family, out into a world where my mind broadened out beyond this binary of Christian or Jewish into, oh, there's also Islam, there are also these um, traditional African religions in play. And then we moved to northeastern Brazil, which, as you probably know, is the largest Catholic country in the world, but where a lot of people simultaneously practice Yoruba-based West African traditions along with Catholicism. So there was also an interesting influence in terms of my thinking that, well, people do sometimes draw from more than one religion in their lives. And so I was primed in a way to make this choice, I think. And by the And by the time we came back to the United States, we actually found a small intentional interfaith families community already in existence where we were living in Washington, D.C. And so I dove right into this. I was the first interfaith child to be a parent in that group. So I'm on the cutting edge of what is actually a very large boom coming up of people of Jewish background being primarily of mixed ancestry in the the demographic below a certain age now. I'm just curious. I've often heard that America is the most religiously diverse country, not just in the world, but in the history of the world. But you now have an experience of having lived in Brazil and in Senegal and in several other places. What was the most challenging place to live as an interfaith identifying person? And what, what was the easiest place to live as an interfaith identifying person? Um, actually, when I was living overseas, I think, you know, when you're an expatriate, you're going to be very different and and um, very obvious, somebody who's outside the culture anyway. And so your religious identity almost doesn't even matter because you're already sort of other when you're in a different culture. And so it was relatively easy to celebrate whatever we wanted when we lived overseas and, you know, have whatever identity, whatever practices we wanted. Back here in the U.S., it's harder because I think we have these very discrete labels and we want to put everybody into these religious boxes. And if you live between boxes, dance between boxes, I sometimes say, that makes people uncomfortable. Um, I do think that this is a sort of inherent human condition that we we want to be able to divide people up and see them in these discrete categories. 
But I don't think that that's the reality of the way a lot of us believe or affiliate or practice. So if we were to imagine a continuum, a a line, on one side might be what we would call essentialism, the idea that every religion and every culture has its distinct, irreducible character, its core. On the other side of that line might be the notion of syncretism, the idea that cultures and religious practices are fluid and that the reality is, is that they are always shifting and blending. So if we have these two concepts in tension, syncretism, essentialism, along this continuum, where would you place your experience with your family along that line? So I think syncretism has a negative connotation in a lot of theological systems and for a lot of religious institutions. But once I really came into my own seeing the world through my interfaith child lens, I began tuning into the idea that all religions are syncretic and always have been. They continue to change. Um, And often there are claims to the contrary, like, you know, this is ancient. We've always done it this way. And that's almost never the case. If you go back in history, if you look at what actually happened, there are influences coming in from outside of whatever your little religious bubble is. And those membranes are porous, and I, I, I very much see it that way. And what does that mean in terms of practice in an interfaith family trying to do both or doing both? We do try to go as deeply as we can into both religions in teaching children both. And we talk about the common ground, but we also talk about the important differences and why they're different. And then we talk about the points of historical contact between the two religions. And that is something that you don't often get in a single faith religious education. So, but we see those points of contact as very important. And especially for an interfaith child to know that these aren't two completely discrete parts of them that don't connect. They do connect. Historically, the religions have connected. Historically, there has always been intermarriage um, between two groups that lived side by side. Um, You know, my father is 100% Jewish. He has very pale skin and red hair. And, you know, people know about Jewish redheads. That did not come from the Middle East. So where did it come from? There's always been, those, those membranes have always been porous. But is there ever a benefit to that? Is there ever an advantage that is given, or is there ever a positive side to that kind of essentialism, or is it always just a misplaced self-identity? What I would say is it's important to me that Judaism, the system, survive and continue. And I'm deeply honoring all of that history while simultaneously deeply honoring all of the Christian history in my children's lives. And I don't want it all to mush together. I I don't want us all to become the same. I, I want to have the sort of detailed funk and grit of each of those two systems, and I want them to know those and to honor them. Um... But at the same time, 
part of what we do in these interfaith family communities is to communicate to the children the idea that they are not a problem. And so to see any kind of contact between the two as problematic immediately problematizes that child's identity in a way that is really corrosive. And what I'm trying to say in the book is that no matter which religious education you choose for your child, no matter which religious label you give them, it's essential to give them a positive sense about their interfaithness. And I don't think any choice you make can completely erase that interfaithness. So my experience growing up was you can have one religion chosen for you, but there's a level as an interfaith child when you're always going to know that you are an interfaith child, even if you're a Jewish interfaith child or a Catholic interfaith child. Because you have grandparents and cousins, and those are formative. You go to your cousin's first communion. You know, you go to your cousin's bar mitzvah. And even if that's not your religion, you have deep love for these people. And it's going to have an influence on you, which I think is a positive influence. Because the problem is often a religious institution that's pushing families to choose one. They're trying to sort of erase the influence of the rest of the family. I don't think it's a good strategy, and I don't think it actually benefits the religion in question um, to sort of try to draw those lines and say, don't go beyond them. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with author and journalist Susan Katzmiller about her recent book, On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. You're listening to Things Not Seen. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey there, everybody. If you've been following my exploits, you realize that I have a great interest in faith and science issues. And that's why I'm happy to tell you about uh, some new friends that I've made, the Zygon Center for Religion and Science at Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Now, why I'm excited about these folks is because every every semester in the fall and the spring, they put on what they call an advanced discussion series or an advanced seminar, and they take some topic that is important in the world of science, and they put it through a lens where they bring both scientists and theologians and New Testament people and people that talk about the various aspects of religion to talk about that subject. And so this fall, they're going to be doing a series on cancer. I know, heavy subject, but um, they're going to look at cancer from all different angles. Some of those angles are going to be scientific, and they're going to bring in cutting-edge theologians and religious thinkers to also talk about it. I'm very excited about it. I hope that if you're in the Chicago area, you feel free to stop by. It's on Monday nights from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago down here in my neighborhood in Hyde Park. That's the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. You really should check them out. They are awesome. Now, to find out more, go online to zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to journalist and author Susan Katzmiller about her book, On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. So you described your mother and that when she left Episcopalianism and joined with your father in a Jewish household, she she did that without irony. She went into a Jewish identity and embraced it, including learning Hebrew and all that, which means that your experience of Christianity didn't come from that blended relationship, if I've heard you correctly. So what was it like for you uh, in the conscious choice with your family to have both traditions, Christianity and Judaism, honored? 
What was it like for you to enter into Christianity in that way? I imagine it was one of the first times that you had really explored the historical nature of that of that religious practice. What what was that experience like? Well, first I'm going to point out that my mother never converted, and that's important. So she didn't leave Episcopalianism. She put it aside, and that's the way I, I would put it. And um, for me... That's also, there. there's that poignant idea that she was holding on to her own identity on some deep level, even though she was completely holding to her agreement to raise Jewish children and doing her best, doing her all to make that happen. But privately, there was a level where she kept her identity. So, but yes, for me, growing up, um, with a thorough Reformed Jewish education, um, I really knew nothing about Christianity. In a lot of Jewish families, it's not something that's discussed. It's a little bit scary, a little bit, you know, the history is very fraught between the two religions. There's a lot of very horrible things that happened. They're real. But for my children, I really felt I wanted them to understand the history, good and bad. Now, for me, as an adult who was given only a Jewish education, I had to educate myself. And there's a process, and we see this with the interfaith families that join our interfaith family community, that for the Jewish partners, often at first you can't even say the name Jesus because you were raised not to say that word. Um, and it's really, there's there's so much um, power and electricity, and it's something that you just don't do. So we work with parents to get comfortable discussing all of Christianity, discussing all of Judaism, so that they can do that comfortably with their own children and help to educate their children. So what does this look like in practice? So when your family is worshiping, what does that entail in terms of sort of concrete times and places? So, well, should I explain about the communities that, that we belong to? Or, oh, sure. Uh, I mean, yeah. So if, if you want to. I wanna... feel like it's hard to do that without explaining our community. Okay, please. Yeah. Um, so a year ago, Pew Research came out with their study of the Jewish American landscape. And the statistic in there that popped out for me is that 25% of intermarried Jewish parents are raising children partly Jewish and partly something else. So these are my people. These are the, the families doing both. And that's, they estimated something like 300,000 children being raised this way. Now, most of them living around the country are not doing it in an intentional interfaith family community. But there are three vibrant programs where this is happening, each of them with over 100 interfaith children getting an interfaith education in a religious education program together. So Washington, New York, and Chicago each have these vibrant programs for interfaith families to do this together. I think having community is really important for every child. And so the only choice that makes me sad is when children don't have community. I mean, if you're going to do neither in the sense of you're both atheists, great. If that's your belief system, then join an ethical society. 
join a Sunday assembly, join. There are various options for families that agree that neither of them wants to have God in the family. But if you're more God is our common link between Judaism and Christianity, then you have other choices. Historically, a lot of interfaith families have gravitated to Unitarian Universalism. And that's a choice that's fairly widely available in many communities. And when you go to a UU community, you are going to find a lot of interfaith families who found a comfortable home there. So that's a good choice. Um, I think the choice my parents made was an excellent choice. There are great benefits to choosing one. And there are more and more synagogues and churches that are very welcoming and inclusive of interfaith families. And that's good. I want all of those choices out there. When my children grow up, I want them to have all these choices available. If they choose to affiliate and join a Jewish community, I want those open and inclusive communities to be out there for them. And I want churches out there for them that will understand something about their journey as interfaith children and will benefit from having the richness of their experience in that church community. Um, But in these three cities, these intentional interfaith communities, what we're doing is usually a lot of these families will belong to a church, belong to a synagogue. And so their places of worship will be in those places. And the interfaith education is a support community and an educational community. It's not a religion. So they're being given a place to not only learn both, but to try to integrate um, and ask questions that might not be comfortable in that Jewish Sunday school or that Christian Sunday school about who they are and how this all works in their family. So, you know, it's, it's a space where they can be surrounded by other interfaith children and feel that they're at the center of that community. And each of these three programs shares a philosophy in which you have a Jewish teacher and a Christian teacher in every classroom. And that's essential because those two teachers are modeling interfaith communication and dialogue and bridging, and they're there to give answers from those two traditions and to help the children figure out how it all fits together for each of them individually, which is going to vary. Each child is going to decide again and again throughout their lifetimes how they want to draw on those two traditions. So what I hear you saying is that this is not just an individual family making this choice, but this is part of a larger community that sees this as a viable option and has built infrastructures to help make this identity workable and and really educative. Um, so what I'm hearing you saying is that you have a great deal of support from this community in, in this endeavor of making uh, an interfaith family really a, a kind of viable 21st century option. Now, is is this sort of model that you said is in these major metropolitan areas like New York and Washington and Chicago, is it spreading or is it mainly just going to be anchored in those three cities? There are smaller groups that have spun off and, and um, popped up organically in different cities over time. Um, there are small groups right now in Boston, in Philadelphia, um, Connecticut. Um, Others sometimes arise with a group of families that together will raise their children in a sort of a a one-room schoolhouse 
share resources, do holidays together. And then when the children age out, it sort of disappears. So they don't institutionalize. Um, I think it's an idea that keeps recurring. Even if people don't know that there are communities out there doing this, they'll come to this decision for themselves. We, we want to teach our children both. Why can't we do this? And you, you have to have a certain amount of you have to have a certain amount of chutzpah, um, of grit, of determination, because you are going to have religious institutions and clergy and probably extended family telling you, oh, no, don't do that. You know, you'll confuse your children. Um, but a lot of my book is devoted to documenting how these children raised in intentional interfaith families uh, with this fairly robust education system come out feeling about themselves and about their identities and about the world. Do you see this choice of making uh, an intentional interfaith family a way of making a contribution that will affect positive change in the world? And what would that change look like? I do, absolutely. Many interfaith families are not thinking along these lines. When they make this choice, they're not making a political choice. They're making a choice that feels like the only choice that works for them for whatever reasons. Um, but when you get all these families together and you start raising the children this way and you look at how those children turn out, as I do in my book, um, I see patterns. And one of the tendencies that I've noticed is for children who are raised with two religions to go on and go out into the world and want to study other religions, more religions. They are religiously curious in an intellectual way that I think comes from being given both systems from the beginning and having that sort of compare and contrast and that awareness. And I think that people who have religious literacy, interfaith literacy in two or more systems are going to be people who build bridges and ultimately people who help to reduce religious intolerance and religious violence. I mean, it's very hard to imagine getting angry to the point of violence in a... <clears throat> it's hard to imagine getting angry to the point of violence around religious issues when you can see the issue from more than one point of view. And that's what these kids do. They are raised to look through both lenses or through that interfaith lens. And that gives them a strong incentive to build bridges and therefore to make peace. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to journalist and author Susan Katz-Miller about her book on being both, embracing two religions in one interfaith family. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. 
If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with author and journalist Susan Katz-Miller about her recent book, On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. You're listening to Things Not Seen. And this gets back to what you were saying earlier about the notion that children who come from these kind of intentional interfaith arrangements become a sort of ambassador for and bridge builder between these various religious traditions. So in what I'm interested in is that, you know, in one sense, to a, an essentialist religious community, these children would be lightning rods. They would be targets. You know, they are they are sullying the pure, unadulterated faith in one way of thinking. Um, so in one sense, they're inviting conflict. But because of who they are and because of the way that they have been exposed to multiple tr- traditions, they also have a capacity for reducing conflict. Um, is, I guess the, the question would be, you know, a choice was made for you about the way that you were going to be raised, uh, that you would be raised in a Jewish tradition. You have made a choice for your children that instead they will have multiple traditions with the sort of responsibility that they would be ambassadors and other children in these communities are being raised in this way. Um, does it ever does it ever come up as an issue that maybe this is not an ethical place to put children, or is this exactly the kind of ethical place we want to be putting our children? So any individual child may or may not resonate with the idea that they are supposed to go out and be an ambassador or a bridge. And if that's a burden, they can ignore it. They can choose one religion, or they can just not be religious. I I mean, I don't feel like we're forcing our children to do this. We are preparing them in giving them this religious literacy and in sensitizing them to the histories. We're preparing them to do that if they so choose. And, you know, part of the whole idea of my book is that you can choose a label for your child, whether that label is, you know, Hindu or Episcopalian or interfaith bridge builder, But as parents, we don't control that. And children grow up and make their own decisions about their affiliations, about their practices, about what they believe. And as parents, we have to recognize that we don't have control over that. Um, And I think part of what we teach our children in these interfaith education, in these interfaith education programs is that all adults grow up and make those decisions for themselves about affiliation and practice and belief. So it's not this terrible burden that we put on the poor little interfaith children that that they're going to have to grow up and make a choice. We all grow up and make these choices, even if it's the default choice of sticking with whatever your deep tradition is. Um, But I also want to... But I also want to respond to what you were saying about these children being lightning rods and and causes of conflict perhaps in you know the sort of struggle for religious institutions to maintain themselves um, I very much understand the fear of a religious minority community about continuity about being assimilated out of existence um, whether that's Judaism or Hinduism in America or whatever, religious minority we're talking about. What we're doing is, I believe, first of all, far better than doing nothing. 
which is what a lot of interfaith families historically ended up doing. Because they did not feel they could make a choice for whatever reason, um, they ended up doing nothing, and that's sad. I think if those children don't have community, that's not good for those children. So for the book, I did actually two surveys because there really isn't any research or studies on these communities yet, and I'm hoping that academics will now come in and do the studies. But I did a survey of 250 parents who had put their children in, in, in who had put their children into interfaith education programs and 50 teens and young adults who had been through these programs. And one of the <clears throat> one of the found one of the findings was of those 250 parents I surveyed who had chosen these programs, 40% had been doing nothing until they found an interfaith education program for their children. So this option to me is far better than that option of doing nothing. But also, in our program in Washington, D.C., which is the one in which I raised my children, for instance, we start Hebrew literacy in pre-kindergarten. So these children are being given a strong and deep connection to that Jewish part of their family that they weren't going to get. And I think that's good for Judaism. I think it's good for Judaism because maybe they will go out and choose to have that be their only or primary affiliation. Or maybe they'll become Buddhists or Christians who happen to have a very strong background and education in Judaism. And I think that's also good for the world because those people are going to be allies and bridge builders, even if they don't identify primarily as Jews. So how has this experience of being in an interfaith family and then choosing to raise your children in an intentional interfaith arrangement, how has that changed your views of Judaism and Christianity particularly? Well, for me, I'm much more comfortable with Christianity um, because I grew up without it. You know, I, I wasn't necessarily that comfortable with it. Um, <clears throat> sorry, what was the question? <laughs> How, how has this uh, how has this experience changed your particular views of Judaism hmm. and of Christianity? I would also say that I still identify myself as a Jew, and that's very important to me, especially if I encounter anti-Semitism or if I feel called on to, you know, be part of that. I, I stand up, and I wanted my children to also feel that. My children know that I expect them to do the same. So no matter what choices they make, no matter what affiliations they have in adulthood, they know that if they encounter anti-Semitism, if they hear people making comments, they're going to stand up and say, hey, I'm Jewish, that's not cool. But I'll identify myself sort of in contrast to the context in which I'm functioning. Because I am doing that bridge building work, I am doing that ambassadorial work all the time. Well, Susan Katzmiller, I've very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Our guest today has been Susan Katzmiller. She's the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Miller began her career as a journalist at Newsweek, working out of their New York, Los Angeles, and Washington bureaus. From there, she moved to Senegal, where she wrote for the New York Times and the Christian Science Monitor. She's worked as the U.S. correspondent for the British weekly magazine New Scientist and spent three years freelancing from northeastern Brazil. After her, ter 
After her two children were born, she and her husband settled in the Washington, D.C. area, and she founded a blog devoted to interfaith family communities and interfaith identity called onbeingbotha.com, and she began blogging at Huffington Post Religion. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios, overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.